Well, I, I know many of us know, I think probably most of us here in this room, I hope we do, that God has plans for us, and we know his plans for us uh, are for us, each of us, individually, and those plans are, are very personal and very much tailored to who God has made us to be. The passage that we just read, as well as many others in the scriptures, helps us to see that, to understand that. And yet we know, too, that we don't live in isolation. And so somehow, in ways that we don't always see, and we don't understand them often when we do see them, God's plans for you intersects with God's plans for all the other people in your life. We also know that he has plans for the church. I mean, we accept Jesus' word that he would build his church. And and we know that applies uh, not only to the church as she has existed down through the ages, made up of all the believers since the dawn of time, but it also applies to each local expression of the body of Christ. We believe on the basis of the examples we see on the Bible, in the Bible and the clear didactics in the Scripture, and even if we're fortunate from our own experience, that it is Jesus' intention to be intimately involved in the church, in each congregation, so that each church is a unique expression of his body, built for that time and place to accomplish his purposes then and there to advance his kingdom in the world that he created and that he came to redeem. God's plans involve even the lost. He doesn't want any to perish, though many do reject God. Jesus said he would draw all people to himself, not that they would all yield, you understand, but that he would reach out to them. The Holy Spirit, and we have Jesus' word on this, is even now convicting the lost of their guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. And in almost the same breath, Jesus tells us, the Spirit will bear witness to him. But the Spirit is not alone in that work. We, too, are to join him in that work, to witness on behalf of our Lord. And just from what we've cited so far, and we haven't even mentioned that God rules nature and the nations and the spiritual realm, weaving all of that also into what he's doing, we begin to see in a small way, just how truly complex God's plans really are. Uh, I mean, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. There is no flow chart that we could draw, no supercomputer or banks of supercomputers, no consortium of intellects and geniuses which could even begin to take it in, but God has it well in hand, not only originating the plan, but bringing it to pass. Even in the smaller details of such a consideration, our own individual lives, even for those of us 
who have put our trust in God, who have committed our lives to him for time and eternity and who know his word is utterly reliable and true without any sin or error or fault in it, the plan of God for our own life is complicated. In James, we're told that we're to make plans, but we mustn't leave God out of those plans, and it's a sin if we forget him in those plans. Proverbs says... We make our plans, but God orders our steps. And I remember the first time I read that and really understood it, and the thought came to me, why there is a real source of conflict, us making plans, but God ordering our steps. But then I, by the grace of God, immediately realized how glad we ought to be that he does order our steps, whatever our plans might be, no matter how important they are to us. For he is infinite and good and all-knowing, and we are, to put it mildly, limited. And we may add, more bluntly, we're sinful and selfish. God's plan for each of us is complicated. Yes, there are things, uh, many things about God's plan for us which are clear and unambiguous. We know, for example, we are, by the Spirit, to put sin to death in our lives. And we're to repent of it and confess it when we fail. Uh, We don't need a special leading from God to do that, that that's what he wants from us and for us. We are, uh, on the positive side, we're to obey God's word, to say yes to him, to endeavor, though we may fail, to put it into practice in our lives. We know that. And again, we know it's God's will and, uh, and plan for us, even though we're imperfect in our implementation, to worship God, to love others, even our enemies. He's part of God's plan for We're to pray. We're to gather together as a church. We're to love our wives and our husbands and our children and our parents, all of which is part of God's plan for our lives. And all of those things are clear and understandable and part of his plan, and they fit into the larger scheme of things. And beyond even those things, sometimes, God gives us a glimpse of a larger portion of the whole picture. For example, he he may call you into ministry like he did me. Or he may give you a career that you know is your calling in life. But where he will lead you and how he will get you from the place where you are in your journey now to another place and the people that you meet along the way and the influence they will have on you and you on them and the things which will happen to you and others during your passage, all of them unfold without our knowing that they're coming our way and where they will go after we will meet them. Yet God knows and he has a plan. And, and we know and believe, don't we? I mean, that God is good, 
and sell her as plants. That's what our scripture reading tells us. So that might prompt us to ask a question. We might ask, since God is good and his plans are good, even though we don't know the details, how can we cooperate with him in bringing about his will? I mean, we spend a lot of effort and time, I think, at least I have, and I know many people who have, wanting to know what God's plan is in the details, when maybe we ought to be considering how we can live so we're working the plan, his plan, cooperating with him in whatever it is that he is already doing. And the text we're going to look at today can help us in that. So I want to ask you to join me once again in the book of Romans. We've begun a study there, chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13. And, of course, they'll have those texts up on either side of the, uh, on the screens there in just uh, a moment, the appropriate times. What we discover when we uh, come to this text, among other things, is that there are at least four ways to cooperate with God as he works his plan, even though we're not privy to all of the details. Four ways to work the plan, even though we don't know all there is to know. But before we begin, however, I, I really want to just uh, take this text, because we can use it and some other texts in the scripture to see how the apostle Paul himself made out with some of his plans. So we're going to begin at the end of this passage in verse 13 where Paul writes this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now. So Paul tells us, in essence, that he had made plans many different times to go and visit the church in Rome. But God, who orders our steps, had a different idea. Paul was prevented in some way that he doesn't tell us how, but he was prevented from going to see the Romans. Now, when we combine that with what we know from some other texts in the Scripture, we find some interesting things going on. For example, during Paul's second missionary journey, he and his companions tried to enter Bithynia. That was a territory in those days. Uh, and, and the text tells us in Acts, where we find that account, that the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there. And before that, we're told that the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the word in the providence of, the province of Asia. And it was immediately after those two things that Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia telling him to come over here and help us. And we know that they went, and that God opened a great door of ministry for them. Now, it's really quite evident uh, that it simply wasn't God's plan for them to go to either of those two areas, at least uh, at that time anyway. But then we come to something uh, that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he tells them, that he had planned, that is, he had tried again and again to go and see them. But in this case, 
Satan blocked him, and he wasn't able to go. Now, we need to make some, a couple of observations about this. First, Paul knew very clearly in each of these cases the reason he was kept from doing what he had planned. Uh, he knew when he was approaching Asia and Bithynia that God himself was directing them away from those areas. I believe he simply recognized God's leading, whether, whether it was because of a kind of a lack of peace when considering going there or some other sense that God was directing them elsewhere. And very likely, Paul's companions had that same sense too. It wasn't just Paul. But he also knew in the, in, you know, in the case of the Thessalonians that it was Satan that was blocking his way. Now, I know this is a little bit of conjecture here, but, but the only way I know in which we can make sense out of this episode in light of what we had just read is that Paul knew that it was the right thing to go to Thessalonica and that God wasn't the hindrance here. It didn't feel like God's leading, that God was keeping him from there, but, but things or people or circumstances all directed against Paul by Satan kept on getting in the way. And I have to tell you, I think you and I <laughs> in those same situations might not have recognized what was happening. We might have gotten it wrong. But we can learn. I can tell you that. We can learn. And the book of Hebrews tells us that as we mature, as we take God's word in and become more and more familiar with it, we actually train ourselves to distinguish between good and evil. Paul knew and he understood. Now there's something else we need to understand here. In, in that second case where Satan kept Paul from uh, going there, he kept getting in the way, God's plan was not thwarted. You see, he had other ways of dealing with the needs of the Thessalonians than what Paul would have brought to the table. And in the meantime, God was working in Paul's life and teaching him to trust him and to use whatever resources he had available to him. So now, when I share this with you, you can see it's complicated, right? But that's okay. <laughs> We don't have to carry God's load here. He's got it. All we have to learn to do is to trust and obey him. But there's more that we can learn here about God's plan to visit the Romans. See, he planned many times, but he was never able to do so. He doesn't tell us, in this case, why he was preventing. He just says that he was. But if we go back up to verse 10, about the middle of the verse, we see that Paul, as he was writing this letter to the Romans, was planning again to go and visit them. And so we read, and I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. So Paul told him that he was intending to go and see them, and he adds, as all serious followers of Christ would do, this caveat that God's in control. It's by God's will that Paul will go to Rome if he goes at all. And Paul knew he would plan his course, but God was the one who was ordering his steps. 
Well, he did get to Rome eventually. I think you guys know the story, right? But he got there not in the way that he planned. While Paul was writing this letter, he was in the process of taking a gift from the Gentile Christians in Macedonia to the church in Jerusalem, and he thought that after he delivered that gift, that he would kind of book a trip to Rome. Instead, he was arrested while he was in Jerusalem. And then he spent several years in prison in Caesarea. And while he was there in prison, he ended up witnessing for Christ to two high officials of the Roman Empire, two governors of Judah, one succeeding the other, and to a Jewish king and queen and to the high officials of both courts, You see, it was an opportunity he would never have had if he had not been in prison. So Paul ended up appealing to Caesar, and he was taken to him in custody as a prisoner. And after other adventures where God revealed his will as things were happening, Paul ended up in Rome where he was to stand trial. But that, too, was part of God's plan. And we know because we just looked at it this summer as we studied the book of Philippians that many people in Caesar's palace, his own palace, came to know Christ through Paul's ministry. All of that, unknown and unguessed by Paul, was all part of God's plan. And neither Paul nor the Romans knew when they each began their long walk with God that one day God would bring them together, that that was God's plan for them. But they didn't need to know it to live out their faith. Again, God's plans are complex. They're unforeseeable, but always for our good. And Paul trusted Christ through it all, and he kept on doing what he knew he should do. Romans 2, and so should we. (laughs) Now we're going to look a little bit more closely at the text. We're going to see, as I've already said, that there are four things that we can do so that we're working the plan, God's plan. And and we see what the church uh, and what the Apostle Paul both did, which in one manner or another advanced God's kingdom. The first thing we see here concerns the church at Rome, and it's this, that the genuine faith of the Romans inspired others. And here, at least, it does so in two different ways. And so we read in verse 8 this. First, Paul writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of because your faith is being reported all over the world. You see, the genuine faith of those believers in Rome inspired others. It inspired believers all over the world at that time. That's the point of telling the Romans that uh, their faith was being reported. And it inspired Paul to pray for them. Those are the two ways the faith of the Romans inspired others, at least in this text. We don't really know um, why their faith was so noteworthy. It, it may have been for any number of reasons. Maybe it was their boldness or endurance in the face.
things of hostility. Or maybe it was inroads that they were making into people's lives that were in high positions. Maybe it was both of those things at once. But whatever reason, people all over the world were taking note of what was happening in Rome. And Paul's response when he heard about it was to pray for them, to give thanks for them, yes, but but it's clear from the rest of the passage that he prayed for them in other ways. You see, when we really live out our faith, it matters to others, especially to other believers. It inspires them to want to live their lives like you're living your life. Yeah, my grandmother was the earliest example that I had of real faith being lived out for God, a real life being lived for God. And even to this day, her faith matters to me and many others in my family. Then, in what I call my home church, the faith of Sam and Flossie Kurtz, it seemed so real to me that I really felt like I could reach out and touch it. And then here at Y Bible Church, Gary Berger inspired me to live more faithfully for Christ. So all of those people that I just mentioned have gone home now. They're with the Lord, but their their example lives on. And still, I have Robert and Ginger. So do you. And they make you want to be like them, don't they? And you're praying for them, aren't you? For healing, yes, but for so much more. You're praying for God's grace and his peace and his presence in their life, even for the testimony that they bear for Christ before others. That's what real faith does. It changes the lives of those it touches. It becomes an example that we want to follow. We want to be like that. And that's part of how we cooperate with God's plan. The second thing we can do to cooperate with God, even though we don't know the details of his plans, is to pray, uh, to be genuine about it, as we ought to be with all the Real faith can inspire prayer. We just saw that, but we ought to pray no matter what, right? And when we do that, when we pray, really pray, it's genuine prayer, some things begin to happen. And so in verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, God, whom I serve in my spirit by preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. You know, Paul prayed, and it was genuine. It wasn't put on. It wasn't a show for others. It, it wasn't something he kind of tossed up in the air and hoped that God might hear. Paul served God in his spirit, as we might say, with all of his heart. And so And that kind of prayer changes things. I mean, we already know that God answered Paul's prayer by bringing him to Rome in a roundabout way, but he got there 
all according to God's plan and accomplishing his purposes along the way. But verse 11 tells us of two other things which resulted from Paul's prayer. First, he came to love the Romans, though he had never met most of them. And secondly, he wanted to make a difference in their world. And so we read in verse 11, I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. You see, Paul longed to see them. That speaks of his desire. It tells us what was in his heart when it came to this church full of people that he'd never met. And we've talked about this before, but it's very real. There are those who come to our Tuesday night prayer meeting who can tell you when we're praying for people, people we've never met, praying for them over a period of time, something happens in us. We begin to really love them. We care about what happens to them. We've been praying for a long time for Jim Joyner's brother-in-law. And as far as we can tell from what the doctors have said about his medical condition, he should have been dead a long time ago. But he's still with us, and we think it's because he still has a chance to come to Christ. But he has resisted every effort that people have made to tell him about Jesus. Recently, when Jim was able to come alongside of him and to share with him some things about the faith, and the man, this man, who, who refers to God as Big Ernie, for the first time, listened to what Jim was saying. And he said something pretty telling. He said, I don't deserve to go to heaven. He went from big Ernie to admitting that he's a sinner. And whether he fully understands it or not, he has admitted he needs some kind of Savior. Now, I can't tell you how happy that made all of us around the table that night over a man that we have never even met. Paul prayed for those in Rome, but he also wanted to make a difference in the world of the Romans. And that kind of thing comes about when we're praying. It comes about when we love. Maybe we could say prayer inspires love and Love inspires our actions, but there is real power in prayer. You know, when we really love someone, we act on it. You only need to think about the things you do for your children, the things you give up for them to see how love makes you act. Prayer changes things. And it's another way in which we cooperate with God's now, now, there are two things I, I need to say about this before we can go on, and we're going to move a bit more quickly after this. First, I don't ever want you to think that when you pray, all it really does is change you. Yes, it, it does do that. It does change you. But that's not all that it does. There is power in prayer, real power, greater
greater than anything man has ever devised or ever will invent power to change the world and eternity. We may not understand how it works, but the Bible's clear. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And secondly, I, I don't want you to feel discouraged when it comes to your own prayer life. I mean, we all struggle with it. Maybe one of the most important things we can come to know about prayer is that a little bit of time spent every day in real communication with God is worth so much more than a lot of time spent sporadically in empty or mindless chatter as though the number of our words, the amount of time spent, were more important. God than your heart. When you really get in touch with God through your prayers, what you discover is that you want more of that. In fact, you find that you need more of that. And you begin to look forward to those times as short or as long as they might be. Real prayer changes things. And we begin to love and we begin to act. And by doing that, we are cooperating with what God is doing in the world, even though we don't see the details or how it all fits together. The third thing we can do is to work the plan and to cooperate with God is doing in our world, again, even though we may not know the details of it, is to take advantage of the mutual encouragement found within the body of Christ. So verse 12, we're going to begin in verse 11, we read, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul wanted to minister there in Rome, but he realized that he would also receive from them. You know, there is a, a truth that the world doesn't know, can't really understand, and which we Christians sometimes don't recognize or we take for granted. And that is this. It is impossible to bless others without being blessed yourself. You know, something happens when the church gathers. Something happens within it. As we live our lives, as we practice our faith, as we show up every Sunday morning and greet each other, as we talk and smile and ask about one another's life, as we sing and worship and give, as we do the different things we do each, uh, each of us do on a Sunday morning or at our life groups or at Awana or Bible studies, those things encourage other people. We don't always think about it. It's not always a, a conscious effort on our part. It is often, and maybe it is mostly, untraumatic. It, it, it happens sometimes in the same way that an army marches. You just keep on going because everyone around you keeps on going. And living the faith in the plain, mundane, everyday day that we do helps others to do the same. 
You see, the church, that's us, all of us. Even when we're not gathered here in these four walls, the church is unlike anything else in our world. It's God's gift to the believer. It is the living, breathing body of Christ expressed in this place and in this time and through it we encourage one another both deliberately and incidentally and by doing that we're cooperating with God cooperating with what he's doing in our world even though we don't understand all the details finally the fourth thing that we do to cooperate with God's plan is to learn to see those doors which God has opened so we can share our faith. Verse 13 again, only this time I'm going to read the uh, whole thing, the entire thing. Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I many times have planned to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. You see, Paul knew a harvest awaited him in Rome, that there would be people who would come to Christ through his ministry. You know, we can learn. God will show us if, if we ask him, if we, if we let him lead us, if we walk with him. We can learn to see those doors that God has already opened so that we can share our faith. You know, Paul had gotten a place in his life where he knew there were those out there waiting and wanting to hear the good news about Jesus Christ, even though they didn't know they were waiting or wanting it. Jesus told his disciples that they thought the harvest was four months away. And he said, lift up your eyes. And if you do, you're going to see the harvest is right there in front of you, and it's ready to be picked. He tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so he says, we ought to pray that God will send laborers out into the harvest field. And as with all such prayers, when we, we pray for something, ought we not to do all we can do to make it happen? Certainly. We are his witnesses. Others have gone before us. Jesus is at work in our world, drawing people to himself. The Holy Spirit is at work too. But where to share our faith? You see, where we go, wherever we go, God has, in one way or another, led us there. He has a plan. And he doesn't make mistakes. The people we meet as we go about our lives are put there by God. Some of them are ready to come to Christ. Others, well, they need to see planted. Or they need to have what's already been planted watered. We are. You and me. We're the ones that God has chosen to put in that place. 
that, we don't know the details of God's plan. We can still cooperate with him in at least four ways. By exercising a genuine faith which inspires others to live the God through real prayer, which causes our love to abound and instills a desire in us to make a difference. To take advantage of the mutual encouragement found within the body of Christ. And to see those doors which God has opened so that we can share our faith. Well, I don't know who you're going to meet. I don't know whether your path will cross another Christian or whether some unbeliever will be there when you go. But I know who knows. So God has plans for us. like it. 